0: Well, hello everybody. Welcome back to Engage in Truth. This is John Bornchain. I'm a senior pastor of Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley Church right here in Colorado Springs. And I'm thrilled that you are tuning in today. We are continuing in our study of First Corinthians chapter 14. Now we have spent four weeks examining the word glossa, this spiritual gift of language that we call the gift of tongues. And again, that's taken us now four weeks to get through that. If you have missed those prior broadcasts, please go to calvaryfountain.com. And there you'll find a drop-down box where you can follow the link there to our podcast radio program, as well as an archive of sermons on Sundays, and we've been going through the book of Matthew on Sunday. And so we're verse-by-verse expository church, and so I wanted to spend some time on a very sensitive subject as we've been going through the book of 1 Corinthians, and now spending four weeks just on the first few verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And, and we'll continue in that vein of thought here today, examining some of the uh, other aspects here that Paul wants our attention to be on. He, he draws our attention now to prophecy as well, prophesying, and and there's a lot of confusion about this one too. So let, let's just spend some time looking at this over the next couple of weeks as we again put it all back in a proper framework of of orderly, wise worship before Almighty God and how the these gifts of the Holy Spirit were used to fulfill the Great Commission. You needed these gifts, and I'll explain more here in a moment, uh, to to further exactly the directives that the Lord had given, especially to his 11 disciples who had become apostles— And we see in Matthew chapter 28, where they're given the Great Commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel. They're to establish the church. And some 8.3 billion people have confessed the name of Christ, estimated since around 30 AD to 2020 AD. Some three to five million Christian churches exist around the world today, not including those who have uh, gone before us. So uh, this is quite a work that needed Holy Spirit activity to accomplish. These individuals of flesh and blood certainly could not have accomplished this. They needed to be infused with the power of the Holy Spirit, like the Ark of the Covenant itself, to go forth boldly in the name of Jesus Christ and lives to be changed, cultures to be changed. We spent a great deal of time talking about that, even the Germanic language uh, from the missionary Ulfius who would go into the tribes of what is known as Germany today and, and actually write them an alphabet so that he could give them the gospel message. We see the transformations that are occurring all around the globe over a period of about a thousand years. Uh, in which we see the Great Commission continuously being fulfilled as you're going to almost 200 nations around the globe even today to accomplish this. So I'm not a cessationist. I don't believe that the spiritual gifts have ceased, but rather that we are misunderstanding perhaps some of the proper application of it. So let's go a little bit deeper in this. 1 Corinthians 14, verses 2 to 5. Let's read there. Uh, For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the Spirit he speaks mysteries, but he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied, for he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. Now, the words prophet, prophecies, prophesy, prophesying are used over 200 times in the New Testament. We find that a word of prophecy was spoken in the church of Rome in Romans chapter 12 verse 6 at the church at Corinth even in 1 Corinthians 12:10 at Ephesus in Ephesians 4:11 Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 5:20 even in Antioch in Acts chapter 13 verse 1 so a number of individuals there who were speaking prophetic words and they weren't even apostles let me give you some examples in Acts chapter 11 and 21 we see Agabus who's giving a prophetic word, even called a prophet. Even the prophets Judas and Silas in Acts fifteen thirty-two. Philip's four virgin daughters, they were prophesying in Acts 21, 9, and Ananias in Acts 9, 10 to 19. So, the gift of prophecy then played this vital role in the establishment of the church and can still be a great value today. I'll explain a little more on that, but we need to, you could turn more, it'll study more in First Thessalonians 5, 19 to 22 in that. So it's not in the sense of some authoritative, inerrant revelation from God, okay? That's given to us through God's holy word, but as a word of edification, exhortation, and even consolation— as we see here in verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 14. So the Greek word translated prophecy properly means a speaking forth. In fact, the late R.C. Sproul aligned with the perspective of the vast majority of notable theologians that communicating the truth of Scripture is the emphasis here, not on future predictions. So the the difference is of forth-telling rather than foretelling. They were to be forth telling in truth, according to 1 Corinthians 14, 5 and uh, verses 20 to 25. So, as I alluded to a few weeks ago, Paul wrote the words of 1 Corinthians around 57 AD. Now, the book of Revelation would still be to come. I mean, it wasn't written until perhaps 90 or later AD. Okay, so just prior to the turn of the second century. So, there were almost three decades of ministry work to follow the teachings of 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, before the final word from Jesus would be recorded. That's what it is. That's what the book of Revelation is. Is the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the book of Revelation is quite clear that it was the capstone of all 18 books of prophecy. Go to Revelation 22, 18 and 19 on that. And it states that the words of prophecy are revealed in full. As Daniel was told to seal it up, Revelation, through the, the, the pen of John, is told to reveal it, right? This is the prophecy. The Revelation is given by Jesus Christ to John to pen it and to give it to all, that we would receive it. And now we have the capstone of the 18 prophetic books. So uh, here we see in 1 Corinthians 14, 32, that all of this is subject to Scripture. This is all subject and accountable to God's holy word, Jesus gave the final prophecy. Now, the gift of prophecy as forthtelling agents, the, the who would communicate truth of the Lord, that's still viable today. But all the words spoken in some sort of prophetic st- uh, statement of saying a forthtelling truth statement is all in subjection, accountable. To the holy text of God's word. So, Paul's primary concern in this passage is the edification of the body. Okay, four times in these verses, the form of edify is used. So, when we exercise our spiritual gifts and bless the body as a whole, we also edify ourselves. I don't think anybody wants to just be on the sideline. You want to know that there's a purpose for you, that you serve the king and he has a role for you to play. And indeed, he spreads out his spiritual gifts. As we went through 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we all make up the body of Christ. Every part has a viable role to play. So you're not a spectator. You have a spiritual gift. If the Holy Spirit is in you, the Holy Spirit will equip you to do the pre-appointed Four determined, pre-appointed works that God has for you. Now, arrogance was a huge problem in this church at this time. Okay, so around 57 AD, Church of Corinth, there's a lot of arrogance. There's a lot of division going on in the church. So it seems that some were getting puffed up over their use of spiritual gifts more so than others because it may have been more visible than someone else's, like like tongues, for example. And you, you know my opinion on that, that that was to foster... The evangelism, it was a tool for evangelism as a tool for the fulfillment of the Great Commission, and that God gave these gifts for purposes, to be used. I will tell you that I had one such experience when I was on a mission trip in Mexico. I remember ministering to a group of young people, and uh, you know, I was just there to serve. That's all it was. It was an orphanage. I was there to serve, and I, I didn't really think much of it. I'm, I'm just engaging in conversation with children. We're worshiping the Lord. And afterwards, some of the elders had asked me how that time went, and I said, oh, it was wonderful. You know, I didn't really—a childlike faith. I didn't really think about any of the parameters. We're just worshiping the Lord together. Well, come to find out, they didn't speak English, and I didn't speak Spanish. And yet, somehow, there wasn't a barrier to us worshiping the Lord together. Now, I, I don't believe that that necessarily was some spiritual gift that was made manifest to me. It was just demonstrating to me—and I'm still in awe of it— that the, There was no barrier to evangelism. Now, I believe that if I were to go again, the Lord would want me to do my due diligence, study the language, be prepared, uh, be diligent in, in preparation, but yet not in any way uh, taking away from the work the Holy Spirit has done, using a willing vessel to go and stand in the gap to bring praise to God. That, there is a practical, tangible purpose in that, and I believe that all the gifts do that. So Paul's wish that everyone would speak in tongues is still a genuine desire given his word of the Thelo that's a sincere expression. And he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It's a word he uses often. It's not anything less than what it says of something an earnest desire he wants them to desire this, to desire to to want the best of expressions to be used fully by God to bring himself glory, right? That you're an instrument in his mighty hand. So some scholars tie this desire, if you will, to Moses' response to Joshua, who had implored him to muzzle the prophesying of two prophets that were in their midst, Medad and Eldad, before they became serious rivals Joshua thought that they would somehow be expressing these, these these prophetic gifts and that would take away from the authority of Moses and Moses responded that he wished for all the Lord's people to become prophets and experience the Holy Spirit in numbers chapter 11 verse 29 so he wasn't using it as a position to elevate himself he wanted the people to sincerely experience worshiping and knowing God right it wasn't a, a sensationalism it wasn't a spiritual ism there was no ism attached to it. It was just authentic worship and knowledge of God. So nevertheless, in public worship, we should desire ultimately what builds up the church. And every one of us has a role to play as the body of Christ. God will make sure that the church is filling the gap with the right folks, with the right spiritual gifts, rather than us huddling together with other people who have maybe a similar gift. Remember this, glorifying God and an undefiled posture of praise is the benchmark by which we measure what goes on in public worship, okay? Now, as we look here, verses 6 to 12, Paul is now going to explain the problem with uninterpreted tongues. No one benefits from something that he or she cannot understand. Here's what we read, verse 6, 1 Corinthians 14. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking with tongues... What shall I profit unless I speak to you either by revelation, by knowledge, by prophesying, or by teaching? So, what does it profit you, the listener, unless you're speaking with something that they can understand? Revelation, knowledge, prophesying, or or teaching. And that's what he wants them to know is that the worship service is profitable for all who are in attendance, right? They need to hear something of substance that they can take away from rather than something they can't understand. And that's even true when we do speak in the same language, right? So the only new gift not mentioned before in chapters 12 to 14 is that of revelation. Okay, that's actually a gift that he's revealing here. Revelation, knowledge, prophesying, or teaching. Revelation is apocalypsis, and that gift refers to, number one, insights the apostles received into the divine will of God, which they then wrote down as Scripture. And we see that in Romans 16.25, Galatians 1.12, Ephesians 3.3, 3, and even Revelation 1.1. 1, 1. It can also be insights into the revealed will of God that is given by the Spirit to any spiritually led person. Okay, If they are filled with the Holy Spirit, and they're accountable to God's Holy Word, and there's maturity in the faith, that they are not trying to build or elevate themselves, then we know that this is of the work of the Holy Spirit. We see First Corinthians fourteen six, Ephesians 1, 17. So Paul gives three analogies that expound on the necessity of intelligibility in the church. Okay, number one, Paul uses the metaphor of musical instruments. Let's go to verse 7. Even things without life, whether flute or harp, When they make a sound, unless they make a distinction in the sounds, how will it be known what is piped or played? So Paul cites the flute and harp, two of the common musical instruments of that day. And I love that Paul cites the language of music here. We can call this maybe sound doctrine, okay? So I'm not an acoustician. I, I don't. Uh, I, I don't know about uh, the, all the variables of the study of music or sound. But let me just tell you this. In summary, music is a collection of coordinated sound or sounds delivered via a frequency that can resonate off the chambers of the inner ear and evoke or provoke an emotional response. So I believe Satan understands the power of sounds and frequencies better than any of us. Uh, he, uh, God, of course, understands it even more. He created it. But we see this from Ezekiel 28:13. Did you know that sound waves can, are so powerful, they can even be used to levitate objects? They call that acoustic levitation. It's a method for suspending matter in a medium by using acoustic radiation pressure from intense sound waves in the medium, i.e. sound is powerful. So we're surrounded by sound waves from speech and radio stations that are piping out what I believe, for the most part, are blasphemous words set to a frequency. So just imagine then the sound of six billion mouths and thousands of radio stations. I mean, just for an example, there's 15,330 radio stations just in the United States alone. So when we sing unto God and speak truth, we are sending out a sound wave that may be in direct opposition to what is surrounding us at this very moment. So when we understand all that noise has impact, then we start to understand why Paul cared that only five intelligible God-honoring words would be spoken. I mean, after all, we'll be judged for every single word that we speak according to Matthew chapter 12, verse 36. So Paul says that we're only making noise if we don't speak through love. If if our desire is not to ultimately bring worship to God and to edify the body around us, then we may be doing it in the wrong spirit. It may be to elevate ourselves with some kind of litmus test of spirituality. I have the Holy Spirit, I make this noise, therefore I am as opposed to bringing glory back to God. And we see this in 1 Corinthians 13.1. So why is it that we tolerate the worst lyrics in music today? I hear this often, that when you ask people, why are they listening to that? What do they say? Well, I like the beat, the sound, the combination of voices and instruments. There's a frequency that they resonate with. So Satan can plug in lyrics to land in the recesses of your mind if that message is set to a rhythmic vibration that you resonate with. Therefore, you will receive it more effectively. Imagine if I could sing all of my sermons to you. Eh, not a, that would be scary. I mean, honestly, uh, you you wouldn't listen to it at all. But I mean, this is why when we study even the Psalms or we study the the Song of Moses, powerful truth that was set to... A melody set to music, so it resonate and sink deep into the thoughts. I, I, this is it's a scary thought if if I were to try to accomplish that in my own strength, but I believe that's why psalms are so powerful. That's why the song of Moses was so powerful. So we must be careful that when we examine the modern-day phenomenon of speaking in tongues, some are so soothing that they can create some sort of rhythmic melody, like a mother's lullaby, that it's a relaxing sensation. Some call this like prayer soaking. Uh, this can be misunderstood as spiritual when it's only a harmony of vibrations. So the second metaphor comes from the field of battle that the Apostle Paul uses here. Like a bugle calls to battle— they must be clear enough for soldiers to distinguish advance or retreat, right? You have to be very clear in how that instrument is used. So we see 1 Corinthians 14, 8. Here's what we read. For if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? So trumpets or bugles, we have a difference of the shofar versus assault pinks. Uh, they were often used to summon people to battle or, or to give a signal for when to charge the enemy or even when to stop fighting. So we see that from Joshua chapter 6, even Judges 6 and 7, even when to stop the battle, 2 Samuel chapter 2 and 18, the battle was over, and the sound delineated, differentiated that, and that's a huge sound to make. You better have the right sound that you're making to either advance the troops or retreat the troops. So there were different note patterns for each command. But if the trumpeter sounded either as an unclear note pattern or even a muffled sound so that the soldiers could not clearly distinguish what was being played, they would become confused and not know what they were supposed to do. So the third and final metaphor that Paul uses here to explain that foreign languages remain unintelligible to those who have not learned them. Here's what he says, verses 9 to 11, 1 Corinthians 14. So likewise you, unless you utter by the tongue words easy to understand, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are, it may be, so many kinds of languages in the world, and none of them is without significance. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be a foreigner to him who speaks, and he who speaks will be a foreigner to me. So you see, he's now dialing it in of the gift of tongues and how it's to be used wholly fully for the glory of God, for the edification of the body, to bring some unity through understanding in that worship. So so the one who speaks in tongues without interpreting is speaking into the air. So in basketball, for example, a player that misses a shot, hears that chant, air ball, air ball. Now, I've heard that a time or two. It's embarrassing. In, in a similar way, the person who blurts out a tongue in worship without an interpreter could hear the same chant, air talk, air talk, okay? It needs to be understood. So it's important to understand that these verses merely serve as an illustration. He's simply trying to say that tongues must be interpreted or they have no value to those who are speaking it or to those who are hearing it. So likewise, uh, musical instruments and in human languages, what we find there are that tongues must be understandable to be effective in a corporate setting. Okay, that's the bottom line there. Let's look at verse 12 in the time that we have remaining. Even so, you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. So Paul again commands the church there to seek those gifts that will build up the body with balance and structure. Let's go on, verses 13 and 19. Therefore, let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What is the conclusion then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I also will pray with understanding. I will sing with the Spirit, and I also sing with understanding. Otherwise, if you bless with the Spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not understand what you say? For you indeed give thanks well, but the other is not edified. I thank my God I speak with tongues more than you all. Yet in the church I'd rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others also, than 10,000 words in a tongue. Okay, very powerful words there. Again, we're understanding it because it's communicated to us in a language. We are na- now able to make an intelligible decision because it was communicated to us with clarity. So the amen here, meaning it is true, from the Hebrew, often stated as a derivative of it is so, or so let it be, or assuredly in the Greek, comes out of the Old Testament worship, as we see in 1 Chronicles 16, 36. Here's what it says, "'Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting,' and all the people said, "'Amen,' and praised the Lord. We also see it in Nehemiah 5:13 and Nehemiah 8:6 where it's connected with this praise to the Lord. It was also used in the synagogue and then in the early church in Galatians 1:5 and Ephesians 3:21. So Paul exhorts those who speak in tongues, to pray that they will be able to interpret their own tongues and those of others. Then explains that he prays and sings in his native language while in the Spirit. He seeks to experience the best of both worlds, the Spirit and the mind. Yet he is still sensitive to ensure that during corporate worship, people understand what is happening, lest it appear as babble. So 1 Corinthians 14, 14 reveals that when speaking in tongues, it is of the Spirit in worship and prayer to God, as we see in Jude 20. But there may be no understanding of it by the one speaking. Therefore, it needs to have an interpreter or an interpretation, especially if uttered in public, lest it be a distraction the enemy will use, according to verses 26 to 40, right here in 1 Corinthians 14. So we spoke about that last week, that the Holy Spirit can give this interpretation to the speaker. And the point is that there is understanding. There's communication happening. It would not be of the Holy Spirit to create or foster distraction, especially with weaker brothers in the midst. And we addressed that when we were in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. So the Holy Spirit gives discernment, as we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So even though Paul is an avid tongue speaker— out of consideration for others in corporate worship, he would rather reserve his gift of tongues for his private worship unto God in the same vein as Matthew 6, 5 to 15, where Christ implores us to go into your room. And when you have shut your door, pray to your father who is in the secret place and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. So you have to remember that a key function of prayer is worship. So Paul spent a great deal of ink here telling us that clear communication in the church is critical. And I want to leave you with that here today. We'll continue in our vein of thought our study here as we go into verses 20 to 25 of 1 Corinthians 14 next week. So continue to stay with me through this very important study as we understand what orderly wise worship in the church looks like. I want to thank you for listening to Engage in Truth. If you'd like to learn more about our ministry at Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley Church, you can learn more at calvaryfountain.com. Again, calvaryfountain.com. Services are at 8 a.m. and at 10 a.m. on Sundays. We would love to see you there. God bless you, my friends. See you next week.